This episode is brought to you in part by Richmond Graduate University. The field of mental health counseling is growing rapidly. Richmond Graduate University can equip you to become a licensed professional counselor, integrating your faith into your clinical practice. Programs are offered in Atlanta, Chattanooga, and online. Apply today at richmont.edu. Welcome to the first ever craft and character podcast. I'm Steve Carter, and it's my privilege to kind of lead a conversation. This is going to be with some of my favorite communicators from all across the globe, people that I believe are masters at their craft of teaching, preaching, speaking, communicating, but also are living the kind of lives where their character is leading the way. This is what I want for you. This is what I'm praying for every single person who's listening to this podcast, is that this podcast would help you with specific kind of keys and tips that will help you whenever you step on stage or whenever you're preparing for a message. But more than that, I believe that every ounce of life is a stage and we need to have the spiritual practices and exercises that are helping us be shaped and formed and transformed in the way of Jesus. And so today I'm thrilled. I'm excited because uh, we're going to have an honest conversation with Bridgetown Church's pastor of vision and teaching, uh, my friend John Mark Comer. Now, the way that this podcast is going to work is it's not just me kind of asking him questions about uh, his latest book, which that would be a great podcast because The Ruthless Elimination of Hurry is a fantastic book and every person should get it. No, no, no. The way that this podcast is going to work is I'm going to set up a clip which you're going to kind of hear a part of his talk, his sermon. And because every person that we interview, I'm going and I'm watching a few of their talks and I'm choosing one to spend half of our conversation on because I want to pick something out of that talk to really discuss, to help you get better at your craft. And then the second half of the talk of the podcast is going to be centered around their character. And I really want to have just this real human, raw conversation about what are the practices? What are the things that they have kind of put in practice in their life to ensure that their character leads the way. Now, I understand, I don't expect the women and the men that we interview on this podcast to be perfect. Please, you understand that. But I, I, I believe, like Dallas Willard taught us, that grace is opposed to earning, but it is never opposed to effort. And I want to learn from some gifted pastors and leaders, some gifted communicators, some gifted disciples about how they are leading their people by constantly pursuing 
growth in their craft, and growth in their character. So today we're going to look at a teaching that John Mark Comer gave at Bridgetown Church. If you don't know much about the church, you got to go online and listen to this guy's teachings. Bridgetown.church. And just fantastic, deep, well-prepared, well-thought-out messages. And he gave a message in early May of this year called Holy Uncertainty. And I just want you to listen to this clip. We'll come back to it um, in in a moment in the the first half of the podcast and discuss it, but I want you to hear it. I just want you to get a, a taste of his sound as a communicator, and then we'll dive into the conversation. The problem is we don't know who. Politicians have an angle, pundits just want our attention, and the media is making millions right now off of fear-mongering. Even the best experts with no agenda just don't know how this will go. As one doctor said to me recently as we were debriefing like contradictory news reports, he said, it's all just educated conjecture. In psychospiritual language, it's a grasping for control. Psychologists differentiate between grief and trauma. The main difference is time. Grief is in the past, whereas trauma is ongoing and there's no end in sight. As well as intensity, trauma is a whole other level of acute pain. And most psychologists categorize COVID-19 as a trauma for our generation. And the hallmark feeling of trauma is powerlessness, feeling like you have no control over your body or your life or your future. And what almost all people do, regardless of personality type, when they feel powerless is grasp for control. Here are a few very common examples that we read in the news every single day. Number one, blaming. Because if we can find a scapegoat to blame the entire thing on, be that China or President Trump or the liberal elites or the media or the right or the left, if we can find a scapegoat, then we can feel in control of the situation or magical thinking, just take this pill or drink this thing, or it's not actually a real thing. Because again, if we can believe a fantasy, then we can feel in control of reality. Or prediction, this one is very common right now. What's going to happen is dot, 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 when in reality, that's one of many possibilities. Because if we can predict the future, then we can feel in control of the future and okay and safe. Or one I hear a lot right now is people saying, the world will never be the same. Maybe, likely, I don't, maybe not. People said the same thing about, you know, 9-11, and in a sense that's true, but we still fly in airplanes. In fact, prior to this, more than ever before. Uh, A lot of people are saying the church will never be the same. The church will never come back to buildings or gatherings. It's house churches forever. Maybe that could happen. I doubt it. I don't know. After the Spanish flu a century ago, people came back to church buildings. And in fact, it was followed by the highest church attendance in American history, and not that many years after by the rise of the megachurch movement. We just don't know. To say the world will never be the same or the church will never be the same is yet another chasing after the wind that is control. 
And then there are the far more common everyday examples from just life, reading the news 10, 12 times a day. Because again, if we can know the future, we can feel in control of the future. Or obsessive behavior at the top of the list right now is dieting and exercise or cleaning or organizing your closet. Because if we don't feel in control, let me control my diet or my body or my workout routine or my closet or my clothing or my stuff or just being super tyrannical with your kids or uptight with your spouse or roommate. The common denominator in all of these examples is a futile attempt to control something that is far beyond our control. We can't control the coronavirus. Influence it, sure, a bit, can't control it. We can't control politics. We can't control the nation state. We can't control the global economy. We can't control the future. But what if that's okay? In fact, what if the uncertainty of life with the coronavirus could be one of the best things to ever happen to our spiritual formation? I hypothesize that control is the issue underneath so many of the issues that block and hamper and derail our spiritual formation into people of love and joy and peace. Well, John Mark, thank you so much for joining us on actually the inaugural, the beginning, the first of hopefully many craft and character uh, podcasts. And um, what's funny is I I have been, I, I've heard about you probably, it feels like for a dozen years, uh, we have a ton of mutual friends but we've right. never actually been in the same location except for one random restaurant at a Catalyst <laughs> conference. And I think we both looked at each other and you're like, we're real. You're real. You're like a real person. Um, I know. I've been hearing about you for years and, and listening to some of your work online. I'm like, wow, he's really hair. <laughs> so um, I, I feel like there's so much that I appreciate about... Um, the way that you communicate a message. And it's, it, it's not, I, I often will tell people, it's, it's one thing to transfer information. It's another thing to speak from a transformed place. And mm -hmm. when I, when I sit that. under your teaching, um, I, really, I really feel like you've, al you've allowed this to, to mess with you. You've allowed this to, to wreck you and put you back together. And um, I, I, I listened to this talk um, that was from early May, May 3rd, I believe. And it was entitled From House to House. It was the last talk in the series. And it, it really spoke to me as someone who, who is truly living in the desert right now, um, both metaphorically and literally in <laughs> hot, hot Phoenix, Arizona, um, and in liminal space in your life. Yes, totally. You know, and um, I wanted just to to spend, you know, the first segment uh, of this just kind of unpacking that, unpacking mm -hmm. the message and unpacking kind of your, I don't know, th theory around the craft of sermon uh, prep and sermon, uh, the art of delivering the right sermon. So give us a little sense. If you remember that talk a few weeks back, uh, just maybe spend a few moments, kind of what was, what was, what really led to that talk? Well, I mean, a lot of it was like my interpretation of a therapy session I'd had and just my own processing 
the level of uncertainty in our world right now is insane, you know? And if you are like me and you grew up middle class and if you're from the majority culture like I am, I grew up on like a steady diet of progress reports and charts and graphs. I'm used to feeling in control of my life for the most part. I'm used to planning for my future with a a degree of certainty that my plans will come to pass if they're realistic. I'm used to a sense of like linear progress and kind of forward motion in my life. And, you know, all, and a lot of that was an illusion, but it was an emotionally helpful illusion. (laughs) (laughs) Um, Not really, but in the, in the short term. And, you know, now the whole world has been thrown into uncertainty. And most people like myself, Western people, millennial and Gen Z in particular, have a very low threshold of pain for uncertainty. You know, people that grew up in a war zone or an abusive family situation or trauma or people, you know, who were diagnosed with leukemia at a young age, like they at least get a chance to make peace with the reality of uncertainty at a young age and to acclimate to it and really thrive in it and actually let it shape them into people of peace and calm and joy and love in the world. But people like me often live in the illusion. I came across this fascinating psychometric study not that long ago that said the average Western person has 15% of the control over their life they think they do. Yes. And it was basically a statistical evidence for like the, the very ancient Christian spiritual assertion that control is for the most part an illusion that is uh, also a hindrance to becoming people of love and joy and peace in the way of Jesus. So yeah, the talk was basically, I think I opened like my, in my like little framework of preaching, um, I attempt to start with like a hook, you know, some kind of a question that has to be answered or a problem that has to be solved or an itch that has to be scratched and always doing what I can to make it not just an intellectual like thing to think about, but like some deep ache of the human heart, like, What's the ache? So I want to start a sermon by trying to identify the ache in the human heart and then take us to Jesus or scripture or, you know, the way of Jesus or whatever to move forward and then end with kind of very practical stuff. So, you know, I think I opened that by talking about like, you know, you're a, you're a college student and you're about to graduate from college and you have no idea if you'll get a job or you're a small business owner and you just finished a remodel on your project and you have no idea if your business will make it through, you know, or you're a pastor and you're <laughs> attempting to lead a church and some people say it's the end of the Western church as we know it. Will you be left with like a podcast and a part-time job, you know, or, or what, you know? So, um, you know, and just attempting like that level of uncertainty and then, you know, the, all the different ways that people deal with uncertainty, almost all of which are unhealthy and cause great damage in the world, you know? So, what I loved about it, and I love how you use that word ache, because I think every time someone comes to listen to a talk, they are, they're bringing in ache. I think they bring some desire. Um, and you're also addressing these cultural strongholds. And within the first 10 minutes, I felt like you did a great job at, at doing that. And we're going to, we're going to play a clip in a second, because I, I want people to see this. Um, you go in this run where you start talking about, we don't know, we don't know. We don't know. We don't know. And it's and it's so circular because you are just really digging at the ache of everyone who wants to predict, everybody who wants some certainty, and you're just like, we don't know. And then you don't stop there. 
you kindly, like a great guide and shepherd um, and prophetic voice who just starts pushing, goes, oh yeah, and we can't control. We can't control. We can't control. And and, and then you, you, you just start bringing, and I'm feeling it. I'm feeling it as someone who's watching you across the screen. You got a little purple background. You're just, you got your iPad and you're just delivering this. And then it flips. And you just simply say, and what if that is okay? And it and you just paused. And it it just like almost was this. I can imagine if someone was listening, a part of Bridgetown, um, or people who have just been tuning into, you know, you like myself from a distance, almost had this like profound exhale. As you start to kind of write that and feel the ache, and you are such a gifted writer, we'll get to that later, but is do you just spend time just almost creating these marathon runs with the phrase that you just, it, it somehow it's just started to sing, um, you know, we don't know, we don't know, we can't control, we can't control. And then the turn on a dime. Do you remember when you were putting that message together, how that first few minutes came together? Um, the first couple of minutes were uh, me thinking about a couple of things that my therapist said. He had said to me recently, he was talking about the difference between, I have this like legendary therapist. He's the 70 year old Quaker PhD that has played this gigantic role in my life. And, um, you know, he'd said something that he'd said, um, that I stole that from him and didn't quote him, but, um, uh, <laughs> you know, you're a college student, you're about to graduate. I, mean, I reworded it, but yeah, yes, he was starting to yep. say these scenarios and he was talking about the difference between grief and trauma at a clinical psychology level and how, you know, grief is past tense. Trauma is kind of ongoing, no end in sight. And, and trauma is like more intensive and how most clinical psychologists would diagnose COVID-19 as a trauma, even if it's a small T trauma for the generation. And how, you know, the hallmark uh, at a psychometric level, the hallmark for feeling of trauma is powerlessness. You don't feel like you have control over your body or your sexuality or your life or your future. And then what happens when people feel powerless is they attempt to grasp for power in what they can control, which is why often so often people that have been traumatized, abused and oppressed when they get power do even greater damage than you would ever imagine, which is not very popular to say. But, you know, there's that famous social justice line from a, from a very woke person who said there's nothing more dangerous than a victim who's given power. And that's because, you know, this is deep wound in us. And when we, uh, when we grasp for control, we often get it and then do damage. With it. So that was just kind of the beginning of my sermon was a therapy conversation. The I don't know thing was a New York Times editorial I read where the guy had like 50, you know, like we don't know. We don't like his whole article in the classic New York Times. And then the last line was like, and the Trump administration has given us no plan going forward, period. End of article. <laughs> There's the whole article. It was just like 50 we don't know. And so, you know, I pulled a bunch from that, you know, and I reworded, but I pulled, you know, maybe half a dozen examples from that. And then a couple like ones for our church, you know, we just bought a building that we don't know when we're going to move into and all this kind of stuff. So yeah, that's where the genesis of the, we don't know came from. And then the you know, what if that's okay? That was really kind of like the crux of the sermon. That That's the hook. That was the yeah. like moment where I want to hook into people's heart, not in a manipulative way, but almost as an emotional discharge to, oh, wow, what if this very thing that we're all trying to fight 
is actually the greatest invitation to spiritual formation in our lifetime. And what if we could come out of this uh, no longer the most anxious generation in, in American history, but with an incredible ease and capacity to just live freely and lightly, you know? So beautiful. And, and you've actually kind of coined this season as the, or the, this year is the year of the desert for Bridgetown. Is, yeah. is, was <laughs> Probably that- not great leadership on my, <laughs> on my end. Proof that I am maybe a, a better teacher than I am leader. I don't know. No, but, but here's the thing. I, I remember um, a number of years ago, I was in Israel um, talking with this rabbi and I'm just saying, hey, you know, in the, in the Hebrew scriptures, you, you've got Egypt, you've got the wilderness, the desert, and you've got the promised land. And I, I don't know, I was just probably so curious. I just asked them like, you know, in, in the course of one's life, how what's the percentage that they'll spend in each yeah, of those three locations? Great, great question, yeah. And, and, and the rabbi, rabbi laughs at me and goes, you know, you Americans are funny. Like, I think you expect the majority of your life to be in the promised land. But we kind of, you know, the the, the total like shrug of the shoulders, yeah. hands up, like the midrash, you know. And he, he's, he just looks at me and he goes, you know, I think like 10 to 15% we believe uh, for Hebrew people will be in Egypt. 10 to 15% will be in the promised land. And the rest, 70, 70, 75% is in the desert. Wow. And Fascinating to quantify it like that. Yeah, and he just said, I don't think any of you are prepared for it. So I actually think it was one of the kindest, yes. um, most- Because you're living there already. Yes, yes, uh, to they name say that, it. They say that the main point of therapy is to help people make peace with reality. Yes. And I think you could argue the same for a lot of spiritual direction, pastoral work, teaching. How do you help people make peace with reality and not fight it, but thrive in it, you know? Yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah. You know, there was a, a thing that I cut out of that sermon that I ran out of time, but um, do you know AJ Swoboda? He'd be a great guest. Yeah. Too, yeah. Br- brilliant mind preacher, incredible writer. He has this book. It's not one of his better known books, but it's called um, A Glorious Dark. Okay. And um, it's a number of years old. And he just goes through like, um, goes through the Easter weekend of Good Friday, Holy Saturday and Easter Sunday as similar to what you just said, as like metaphors for the different seasons of our life. And I remember reading that we all kind of get Good Friday and we all kind of get Easter Sunday. There are times of grief, lament, loss, process, death. There are times of new birth and God stirring things in us, and we're starting new things and new seasons. But, you know, even for those, I'm a more Anabaptist and Anglican, so I'm not a big church calendar guy, but even for the people that are big church calendar people, like Holy Saturday is kind of the non-mention, don't do anything, you know, which is kind of fitting. The gospels, like it's one sentence in most of the gospels, but he just has this beautiful meditation on Holy Saturday. What it, what it, what it feels like to be in between, to be, you know, not know what's coming, to be out of control. What is it? What is Sabbath? See, Holy Saturday was on the Sabbath. What does it look like to rest in God when the outcome is completely uncertain and unknown? And you're still grieving the past, but yet there isn't the sign of new life yet. You're just waiting and trust on God's promises. And man, that's just, that's just really been coming back to that meditation over the last two months and just thinking, man, this is a holy Saturday season or in, you know, the metaphor I used in that sermon that you just used, it's a desert in between liminal space yeah. we're between Egypt and the promised land. We're between Good Friday and Easter Sunday. And we might be here for a little bit. I mean, who knows? You know, and and I think what's so amazing is I, I think you you named 
where we tend to go. We want to predict. We get yep. hyper vigilant or tyrannical. We we get like want to blame. Yeah. yeah, we we play all of those games, and I, and I love how you brought us back to Exodus. Um, and 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 I'll get to that in a second. But you know, you, it's just you kind of on a stool with an iPad. And if we went back to fall 2019, um, is that is that similar to how you you would normally teach? Are you typically walking around? Um, or are you typically on a stool with an iPad? How has your craft of communication shifted or stayed the same in these desert times called COVID? Oh, well, I mean, the teaching to a camera has been very different. And so I've had to, I'm having to kind of relearn and uh, the parts of it that I hate and parts of it I love. And we could unpack that if you want, um, because we're all trying to figure out how to preach That's to right. a red blinking light right now, you know? No, I don't walk around on stage. I'm a manuscript guy. Um, I'm not quite smart enough to just stand up with an outline and be awesome. Uh, so I have a manuscript that I attempt to make it sound like I'm not reading, but it's written up word for word in front of me. And I do teach from an iPad. Normally, I have an actual Bible with me because we're uh, really trying to create a device-free experience at church. I ask people to put their phones away. The scripture is not up on the slides. There'll be references, but we don't put the scripture itself up because we want people to turn in their Bibles to. We want it to be like 80s style. We're like, turn your Bibles to Matthew 4, yes. and you hear the whole, you hear that paper, you know, which you hear right now, or at least you did prior to COVID <laughs> in, our, in our beautiful little community. Um, so yeah, normally I would just stand in front of a table. I would normally stand with my iPad there and a actual Bible Bible there. Um, but I've so loved, I, when I started for many years, I taught from a stool and I'm falling back in love with it. Uh, so I think probably when we come back, I will most likely go back to a stool. It feels really normal to you. It feels very like a, just, um, again, you've got a, you've got a great tone um, and you've got a great just dis, um, disposition, but there's this sense of you're pulling from all these different places, whether therapy, um, whether Scazzaro, you know, whether uh, kind of uh, Shakespeare in, in your talk, that deep dive in Exodus. I mean, it's just, it's kind of this uh, cocktail. And, and yet I feel like I'm, I'm in your office and just receiving. And it, it's, it's, there's, a, there's a richness but there's a calm. Like, I don't feel like you're trying to impress. Um, and it's like, you yeah. know, your you know, your sound, you know, um, who you are. Um, and especially to be able to do that in a conversation where you had to be a little vulnerable that you mentioned in this talk, even in these holy uncertainty, as you call it, um, that confusing in between, you're a planner. You're someone who wakes up on your day off, you mentioned, and you, a good day is the night before right scheduling it all up. Yeah. Like, uh, so, so you, how, how are you doing in this season as a communicator? You're in this amazing mid-century modern, like, uh, building project of this beautiful building. And if you're not following John Mark Homer on on Instagram, he, he, every once in a while will drop a story and it's, it, it's fantastic. Like as someone who appreciates design, I love it. I love your eye. I love what that space is going to be. And even you're doing the before and after, but you don't know when you're ever going to be in that room. And <laughs> so you've made all these plans and there was one line that you said, and it's all come to a screeching halt. 
What's that do inside you? Yeah, I mean, in all honesty, yeah, I mean, I got nothing to hide. It, it was really hard. I mean, uh, I think I'm not nearly as godly as I thought I was prior to COVID-19. <laughs> <laughs> and, you know, and it exposed, um, it, it exposed all of my attachments, you know, wow. or in Calvinist language, my idols, or Robert Mahalan calls them our trust structures, you know. Um, the things that we put our trust in to be okay. Thomas Keating called it our emotional programs for happiness. Love that yeah. line. Meaning just the things that we think we need to be happy and okay and at peace and at love in the world. And I, I think it exposed how attached I am to our church, which I thought, I felt like I was really attached. I've been here 17 years. I feel like a lot of ego has been worked out of me. I feel like I have a strong sense of self. Man, it ex it exposed my my how attached I am to our church, how attached I am to this building, how attached I am to making budget, how attached I am to our planning. We're in this we're in like one of the most important years we've ever been as a church, ramping up. We have multiple hires. We have a high level position coming in to offload a ton of stuff. Me, who's this job and is waiting on the visa coming, you know. So it's like could not be a worse possible time for a global pandemic and recession to hit, you know. And I just realized how attached I am to all of this stuff, my plans for the future, especially. And um, in my actual day-to-day -day life, the psychological load of leadership is really heavy right now. I just came down with shingles, which sucks and is likely no. a result of that. But my actual day-to-day -day life is, is good and rich and I'm blessed and I'm grateful and I have more than what I need to live a, a wonderful life with Jesus and the kingdom. I, the Lord is my shepherd. I lack nothing. So yeah, it's just exposed those attachments and that's brutal gut-wrenching work to let those things come up and then to go through the process of grieving and letting go of them. And, but man, I just feel, you know, it's up and down. I wish I could say I'm just always in the, the awesome space, but with each passing week, I feel more detached, more free and more at peace, you know? So I just, I really, for me as a hyper, you know, obsessive control freak perfectionist, this could be the, the great moment of freedom in my life. You mm. talk to people, like I asked this one person who's much older, who has almost the exact same personality type to be by multiple different differentials. Like, how did you become you? Like, I look at you, look at me, and we have the same Enneagram number and the same Myers-Briggs type, but you are so much more just being at peace in your own body. And he said, well, it's two things, and they were both extreme moments of suffering in his life. And he's like, it was these two things that, um, that shaped me. And he's like, well, prior to that, when I was your age, he said, I, I was a mess, you know? So, um, you know, I, I'm, I'm hopeful that this could be that moment for me and for so many others, the turning point moment. And I want to pastor to that and teach to that. You know, as a teacher and as a pastor, I think pastor is a really broad, wide, expansive word that we do disservice to when we narrow it down to a specific stereotype. But for, for me and the kind of role that I think I play as a, as a pastor or shepherd is I take my cue more from action there and almost like personal trainers from Peloton than I do <laughs> from CEO, business leaders or politicians. Not because I think that's bad and there's a place for that in the kingdom of God, but that's not really my place. And I think my place is really to try to help people make peace with reality, ground themselves in God's presence and peace and let Christ do a deep work of transformation in them so they can go out and do what 
God's made them, you know? That's so that's beautiful. I'm, that's what I'm preaching toward. Yeah. And, and I think, you know, not to give away the sermon and obviously we'll have a link in for people to just to click on it. And I would really highly, highly recommend listening to this, but how you close the sermon. Uh, you kind of alluded to this just a second ago, but you said, Hey, you know, a lot of times we do take our cues from CEOs and business leaders. Um, oh, did I'll, I say gonna, that? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, you Got did. It. And you, you talked about like, I, I take my cue for me um, as a doctor sitting with a cancer patient and, and just uh, who's not the best, uh, but isn't going to like pretend, but in all honesty, you said these words in all honesty, can look at the patient and say, I don't know, but I'm with you. And, and, and I just, I, I, again, maybe it's just the stage of life I'm in. Maybe it's where I, I'm living. Maybe it's the, the, the liminal space for me as well. But, um, you then just said, and we don't know, and that's okay. And, and I think, you know, you've been doing this for, you know, almost 20 years. Um, we're not taught to do that as a pastor. Yeah. We're taught to have answers. We're taught to, yeah. we're taught to, you know, get so many people in the room that we don't have Holy Saturday. We have Easter services on Saturdays. It's, it's, all, it's all Easter all the time, baby. Exactly. All, exactly. all promised land all the time. All best the is, time. Hashtag best is yet to come. <laughs> <laughs> so yeah, it's, like and a, it's I, like a mutant hope. Yeah. And you, I think in this, your words and how you just ended, and we don't know. And that's okay. <laughs> that might be the worst leadership ever, bro. I don't know. <laughs> no, man. I think, but I think I, who does know? Who yeah. does know? And I think you, again, you named it and you pastored people through it. And again, you walked brilliantly through three invitations that Exodus 13 gives to us. It was powerful. But again, the things that stood out to me was just your ability to put your, your finger on that ache and almost grab arms and hands with your people and yeah. say, in all honesty, I don't know. Make peace reality. One of my top 10 books is um, The Road Less Traveled by M. Scott Peck. Yes. that. Yes. And I think his opening line is life is difficult. Yep. And then on page, but it's not like some sour thing. And uh, he's a little snarky at times, but on page one, he basically says life is difficult. And if you expect it to be easy, it's way more difficult. But if you expect it to be art hard, it's actually good, you yeah. know, <laughs> and it's the sociologists, you know, use the little formula. Happiness equals reality minus expectations. Yeah. And so, you know, when we, and that's where, that's where pessimists like argue, well, that's why I'm up, whatever. And they're not saying that they're saying realistic expectations, you know, you have to make peace with reality. Yeah. And I think a, a large part of the work of a pastor should be to help people make peace with, with reality. And I've just been, you know, for some of that's just my personality. I mean, I'm pretty type A and driven and stuff, but I'm not like a crazy, you know, shout kind of person. But, um, but I've really just been working under the, the work, my working theory is that um, emotional energy is not the same thing as spiritual power. Mm, that's good. And that a lot of people in their preaching, you know, utilize hype and verbal manipulation and energy, which is really just adrenaline coming through their body as like a pseudo form of spiritual power. And I'm not against like energetic pacing around the stage and you know, I have no yeah. problem with that at all. Be who God made you to be through your personality, through your socioeconomic, through your ethnic background. I'm great. That's wonderful. 
but for me, you know, um, you know, I just spent the power is in the content. It's in the truth. It's in the gospel. It's in the spirit with us. It's when coming, it's in making peace with reality, both the reality of our suffering and uncertainty and the reality, reality of the Trinitarian community of love that we've been invited into through Jesus by the spirit. That's the ultimate reality. So, you know, how do I just like truth? Like there's, you know, I think about Keller, you know, <laughs> and while I have some theological differences and while my, my format of preaching is totally different than Keller, but I mean, his content is just unparalleled. Yeah. And here he is, sounds like a professor and he does it on purpose. I remember hearing a thing, him saying, I do it because in New York, people are skeptical. They would be, they're skeptical of emotion. Emotion is interpreted to be, you know, not true. And so they're used to professorial kind of lecture. So that's how he gives sermons is like a professorial lecture, but he's so calm and it's not even super artistic necessarily. You know what I mean? It's very kind of yep. point one, point two, point three. But man, his content is just yeah. like, and it's so concise and so to the point and so wise and insightful, brilliant and exegeting culture as he's actually digging the Bible. And you're like, man, the power is just in the content. Yeah. You don't need to yeah. hype it up. I mean, you don't need Keller like walking around the room shouting and like yeah. looking sexy in a great outfit <laughs> with expensive shoes. You know, you don't, he's just there and you're yeah. like, this is reality. It's powerful, yeah. you know? So I don't know. I like that reality of, you know, I like that. That's my working theory that emotional energy is not the same thing as spiritual power. So good. And and I think you're so right. You know, whenever I'd be developing younger communicators, there's a there's a few messages that I, I just have them listen to Keller because it doesn't matter what Old Testament, Hebrew scriptures, character, he's gonna find a link that's gonna bring you right back to the ground of the cross. And you're all of a yeah. sudden you're like, How did you do that? You know, and it just it made me realize that everything we see is an invitation to kind of discover the human ache and the need for the gospel, or right. it is a beautiful picture of restoration and reconciliation, you know, and, and he's just a master at that. Um, I want to, you know, this, this podcast is called craft and character. And, and so the, the craft of communication, but we want to be people whose character leads the way. And, and again, um, you know, I, I think it's fascinating that you released a book called the ruthless elimination of hurry. And, um, it drops and a few months later, um, nobody gets to hurry anymore because we are like, just stop. And I, and I feel like so many of my friends right now, they're like reading this and they're, they're saying, gosh, this is the season that I, I, all of my distractions are just coming to the surface. Yeah. All of my, my need. And, and I appreciate you because I feel like you, like you did in this message, like you've done in your books, um, like you've done in series there is this sense of the character, who you are truly, who you are becoming. Um, and again, none of us are perfect. We're all addicts. Uh, we're all in process. We're all needing more of the spirit. Um, but you, you have like, you have some practices, some spiritual exercises that I feel like you've committed to that you actually trust that are gonna help you become a true apprentice of Jesus. Can you can you talk about how um, that came to be and what some of those are? Hmm. There's not one answer to that. I mean, I I'm the son of a pastor, so I grew up in the church and I grew up following Jesus. And uh, I mean, I this is so weird. 
I don't have any memories of not waking up in the morning and starting my day with scripture and prayer. Um, not because I'm so spiritual, but because my parents made me. We had a rule in my house, like no Bible, no breakfast was the rule. <laughs> so, dude, I've been, I'm almost, I've turned 40 in two weeks. And this is the first year I've not read through the Bible in a year as in my memory. I don't have, from when I was a little kid, I was reading the Bible in a year with my dad and my mom. So, and it's just, I'm still reading the Bible to clarify. I'm reading it actually <laughs> more, not less, but I'm reading Lectio Divina. I just read Second Corinthians two times, read the Exodus narrative four times. You know, like I'm just trying to kind of go deeper and really sink in and let scripture form me. So I'm just trying something different this year. It feels like sin, but I know it's not. Yeah. <laughs> um, <laughs> so, you know, so, so there's some things that were built into me through that kind of evangelical tradition of church on Sunday and morning scripture and prayer. And, um, but the other stuff I came into much later for the most part through failure when that kind of rule of life, we never would have used that language, but that kind of rubric for what it means to follow Jesus to kind of get up in the morning read the Bible, pray prayer in the sense of ask God for some things in, in your mind. Um, and then go to church on Sunday and study the Bible and go do it that, that, which is all good stuff. I'm for all of that. I still do all of that. I think everybody should. Um, it's that and not that, you know, it's more than that, but not less than that. Um, but it just stopped working in the sense of, you know, my spiritual formation, if you want to use that language, my growth into maturity and the vision of Jesus and the kingdom through my kind of teen years, college years, twenties felt like there was forward motion, not in like in a linear sense, but I felt like I was becoming more like Jesus and more of my best self year over year. And then when I hit my kind of mid twenties, it kind of stalled out. I hit this plateau right when my discipleship to Jesus hit like the deeper stuff, trust structures, personality stuff, like, you know, literally stuff wired into my central nervous system, you know, uh, in the language of science, epigenetics, you know, like the, the sin that was passed down from my great grandfather and my genetic code <laughs> yeah. of like, think of my grandpa, who I love, wonderful guy, um, but who was an angry, critical perfectionist and how that is all of that is in me. It's in my body. If epigenetics is to believe at a, at a genetic level, I carry that in me. Very biblical idea, very exodus to the third and fourth generation kind of idea. Very, very biblical idea. You know, and so once it started to hit, oh, my personality, my shadow side, my culture, stuff that were the assumptions of my culture, whether that's consumerism or individualism or ego, once it started to hit my fear, my deepest fears that I have, and there, we all had deep fears, they're different for each of us. It was like all of a sudden that kind of read your Bible and pray and study the, and study the Bible on Sundays, it like all, not that it's bad, it just, it was like I was banging my head against a concrete wall. And I wanted so bad to change and I just could not change. I felt more stuck than ever. And then once I began to enter the pressure of leadership, then I felt like I was regressing, not progressing. Then I had this whole shadow side that I wasn't even aware of all the stuff in me that I was hiding from my own self, I was a stranger to my own self in so many ways, you know, that was causing great damage to the people that I was leading and working with as a pastor, you know? So really, man, I came to it through pain, through this sense of, man, this formula isn't getting me to a high degree of transformation. This mm -hmm. is not getting me to Matthew 5, 6, and 7. This is not getting me to Romans chapter 12 and 13. This is not getting me to Colossians chapter 3 or Ephesians chapter 4. Um, there's something here, you know? 
where my soul is stuck and hurt and in need of healing and freedom and change. And so that kind of brought me into the world of spiritual formation and psychology. And, you know, the reason I talk a lot about psychology, which it sometimes gets me in trouble and I, it's still an open question, should I be doing this? But my current theory is that prior to the enlightenment, the job of the pastor was called the, the curate, you know, as our Anglican friends would say, and the Latin word is cure, and it means both care of the soul, but also cure of the soul. And the, the priest or the vicar was really like an expert in the life and the growth and the healing of the soul. That was really, his job wasn't to run an organization or manage a staff or oversee a budget or chart a long-term future or do a building campaign. Not that those are, those are all great things, but his job was basically to help you pray and grow in Jesus, like to help you curate your soul around the gospel of Jesus and scripture. So I think that was lost in the enlightenment. And, you know, it's like psychology and that, which is, you know, from Pusuke, Greek word for souls, where psychology soul. comes from, that was kind of farmed out to Freud and some of these hardcore anti-Christian and, and, and frankly, they were scientifically mostly wrong too, but anti-Christian voices that that kind of became the domain of, of secular therapeutic world, which is very antagonistic against faith. And then kind of Bible and theology stayed in the responsibility of the pastor. So you go to seminary and you learn Greek and you learn Hebrew and you learn church history and you learn the Bible and it's all great. I'm all for it. But like, you don't learn how the soul changes. Like, how do you yeah. heal from trauma? How does somebody address their shadow side? How does a leader not lead out of a father wound? How do you sort through your motivations? How do you get over addiction? How do you overcome attachments in your life? What do you do with compulsive behavior? How do you help people get free? How do you people help people experience God in the day and age of the iPhone, you know what I mean? Like this is the, this is that stuff wasn't in seminary and that's not a critique on seminary per se. It's just sad that people feel like they have to go to a secular therapist to get free of a wound, become a person of love. And they have to go to a pastor to learn the Bible. And so I think what I'm trying to do is bring those two things back together under the rubric of the soul in biblical theology. And how do we, how do we care for the soul and open it to God for its cure, for its healing, you know? I, I think that's so powerful because, you know, we've both had moments where getting to lead and teach and, and God, God's just worked in and through our beauty and brokenness. And yeah. then we spend the next week in leadership meetings, but also in meetings with people uh, that are part of our congregation who are saying, hey, when you said this, it brought to light X, Y, and Z. And now you're left with this bag of pain or trauma or abuse or addiction. And for many people who have not, who've only been taught Greek and Hebrew, <laughs> and they've yeah. not either done the work on their own soul or yeah. now are caught going, I don't even know what to do with my own stuff, let alone my people's stuff. And so I think oftentimes pastors go, okay, walls up. I'm just going to go build buildings and stay yeah. leadership or, you know, kind of farm it out or um, get to a part of literally leaning in and doing the hard work. And that's, again, something I've just seen from afar. Um, you're, you're really honest with who you are. You're, you're honest with your sound. But there's been a few practices that I feel like you've said, hey, in this season have been almost game changers for you. Yeah. Um, can you speak to maybe one or two of those that you would just say, hey, for, for someone who's just getting started, 
Um, maybe in this sense of they've spent so much time trying to grow their craft of communication, but just beginning to realize, man, maybe their character's taking a little bit of a backseat. What, what would be some practices, one or two that you'd say, uh, maybe you might want to do some investigation on this. Yeah. I mean, dude, I don't have anything to say that isn't, you know, it's all, it's all so basic, you know, yeah. but rest and specifically mm. Sabbath, you know, Sabbath has been life-changing for me. A lot, a lot of people talking about Sabbath the last five years, which is great. I grew up, I wasn't even on my radar. There's like a Jewish thing or a Seventh-day Adventist <laughs> thing or, yes. you know, which I was told they were all cultists. You know, I mean, I had no idea. It wasn't even, it, was, it wasn't even on my radar screen. Lord's Day, that was a thing, but that was like an exhausting day of going to church four times. So, um, you know, which uh, that's not to slam church on Sunday. I'm very much for that. But uh, yeah, so Sabbath, man, that's just been life changing for me. And rest in general, you know, the, the basic principle that the more work you do, the more you need to rest. And, you know, I read this, read two things recently, a couple months ago that have really given shape to how I view things right now. One was I read that book. I'd never even heard of it, but apparently it sold over a million copies. But Gordon McDonald's Ordering Your Private World. Yeah, yep. And great book. And uh, I think it's from the 80s. And he has this, my favorite line in the whole book, I think I can say it from memory, was time must be properly budgeted for the gathering of inner strength and resolve so that, I'm sorry, to compensate for one's weaknesses when spiritual warfare begins. Ooh, ooh, that's good. Time must be properly budgeted. Yeah, so... So that idea that, oh, wow, I need to rest so that when the spiritual warfare begins of preaching on Sunday or leadership, and you're in that moment of warfare, all of my human weaknesses, vulnerabilities, my shadow side, my ego, my fear, my grasping for control, that doesn't just come up and sabotage the good work that God wants to do through me. Because I'm not a ventriloquist dummy. I'm a human being. I'm preaching. We all know it. people always pray like for me before I go, we do a pre-gathering prayer and yeah. inevitably there's somebody who's like, God, let it not be him speaking. Let it just be you through him. <laughs> and I love it. I never correct it. I want that, but that's not what preaching is. That's right. You know, that's, that's not even what prophecy is. That's what audible voice of God from heaven is. That's not God's truth and spirit coming through a human being with all of their limitations and their vulnerabilities and their shadow and their personality for better and for worse. Preaching is God's truth coming through your life. And of course, we want it to be more Jesus and less, of course, all of that. But but even that to a degree, I don't think God wants me to stand up and be a teleprompter, you know what I mean? Right. Or a text message, or that's not how, if, if God wanted that, he'd just write in the sky what he wants us to know. Preaching is different. It is how is God coming through this person, through the, the filter of this person, and even the the, the discoloration that come through this yeah. person's shadow, you know, that's why I just think it's, I mean, self-awareness should be one of the top priorities of anybody yeah. in any kind of public leadership role, anything like you, yeah. if you're not doing serious work to be aware of your shadow self and make peace with your whole person, you don't have to be perfect, but if you're not self-aware, you're going to, you're going to do great damage. You know, I did for so many years. I still do. <laughs> not like I'm done, you know, but I, I did a lot more than that, you know? <laughs> So, um, yeah, that was huge. And then I read this interesting, um, I read this interesting, like, novel that was rooted in science about Olympic athletes. And there was this great line 
that said the difference between the elite, when it comes to elite professional athletes, the difference between the Olympians and the just borderline professionals is not how hard they train, it's how hard they rest. Mm. And he basically said, everybody, once you get to that level, everybody, you're the sports guy, I'm not a sports guy, but it said everybody trains just as hard. What really separates the elite from the professional, the men from the boys, as some would say, is how hard they rest, how seriously they take their rhythms of renewal, rest. I've been learning a lot about load management. Again, I'm not yep. a sports guy, so it's a new <laughs> well done. To me. Yes. And apparently it's a com- my a common, you know, um, my my therapist actually brought it to me. So this therapist Quaker dude, he used to have a practice in LA and a bunch of the LA Dodgers were in his were, were in his under his care. And he was talking about pitching. And again, I don't know anything about baseball. Yeah. My understanding of it was he was saying for the pitcher, you can only pitch so often. Pitch count. And it becomes this problem when they get to the World Series because the pitcher helped get the team there. But now he can't pitch enough, you know what I mean? Because, or he'll throw out his arm and then it's over, you know? And apparently in the, in the NBA, it's a newer concept and it's causing controversy apparently because people pay tickets and like you go and there's so-and-so. And he's like just on the bench caring for his soul that night. You know what I mean? Yeah. Like, you're like, yeah. no, I want to see this person go. So I'd love to have you talk about that. But the basic principles, I understand it is the more crucial your role is and the more pressure is put on your body as an athlete or your soul as a preacher, the more you need to rest and prioritize self-care, not the less, mm. which is how most people go. And I think you see that in Jesus and Luke 5. He often withdrew yeah. to lonely places and prayed. So I don't know. you have any thoughts on, do I understand load management correctly? Like you're the, <laughs> you you're the sports podcast guy. I'm the literally <laughs> homeschooler who couldn't do anything. I'm a klutz guy. I read poetry. No. <laughs> no, no. I, I mean, the amount of money that LeBron James has invested in his kitchen staff and his rest and the amount of sleep that he gets is, I mean, I think a lot of people, if they learned about this, they'd be like, wait, wait, what? Well, he's pushing his body. And in his mindset, he's like, I got to eat right. And I got to sleep right if I'm going to perform right. Wow. And, and I think when I sleep, I want to say it's, it's, between 11 and 12 each night. Wow. So wow. it means just the sense of like he is rested. And then every time you see him, he's got tons of energy, but for him, nothing gets in the way of his rest um, because that that's so connected to his performance. The load management piece is connected as well to the AAU, the travel leagues and how quickly, and, and I think there's a connection with this with um, emerging voices where sometimes we, you know, both you and I were put up on platforms at a very yes. young age in front of a ton of I people. Was ready at least. Exactly. Yeah. Right. And so there's probably miles on our soul that we didn't get the time um, and mm. the mentorship to know how to take care of that. Right. Yeah. The same thing's happening with their knees. And if the main goal is an NBA championship, because no one, no one defines you like, well, you won 64 games this year. They define you how many rings or championships do you have? So wow. I think for us as communicators and leaders, our goal has to be finishing well. Yes. And, and if we're going to finish well and be that model for decades, then load management matters. Yes. And not 47 messages, but maybe 32, maybe 28, yeah. maybe 34. But everyone's different. But I think that, so I really resonate with that. And I think that's a are really, really powerful. You know, we, we hear a lot, it's a marathon, not a sprint. It's not a marathon. Marathons don't last 80 years. 
totally. It's like a series of high intensity track workouts followed by rest. Yes. Yes. You know, yes. it's it, like a relay race. Yes. It's, it's you know? so, so true. So, so true. Well, Hey, John Mark, thank you. I mean, again, I, I love this book, uh, the ruthless elimination of hurry. Any, anytime someone can drop a little Dallas Willard and just expound <laughs> upon it for our day and make it so accessible. You are a fantastic writer. Um, I, I'm so oh, grateful for your fun. preaching um, and just your example. And just uh, if, if people who are tuning in wanted to learn more about your work, where, where, where could they go? The internet is there. Just John Mark Comer, <laughs> C-O-M-E-R. Um, the church that I'm a part of is called Bridgetown Church. And that's where most of my teaching is at as far as the podcast goes. But yeah, man, I'm so grateful for you. You know, you've set such a great example for so many of us over the last year by choosing to do the hard thing um, and really caring for your soul and your integrity. And so we're just really grateful for you, Steve. Awesome. Thanks, brother. Hey, really appreciate it. And uh, much love. And we'll talk soon. Thanks, man. Well, thanks so much for tuning into the very first Craft and Character podcast. I hope that you enjoyed John Mark Comer. I think he's fantastic. He's a gifted communicator, incredible writer and thought leader. Uh, he's written a number of books. Uh, I, I just tell you, you got to pick up Garden City and you got to pick up The Ruthless Elimination of Hurry. They're just two important books, theological, they are helpful, practical. They, they both will wreck you and put you back together. Um, so please do yourself a favor if you have not yet already get those books. Hey, if you enjoyed the podcast, uh, please review us on iTunes, spread the word. We're, we're actually on Instagram uh, at craft and character and also on Twitter at craft underscore character. Let us know if there was a quote, a thought, uh, maybe there's a, a person you want me to interview. Uh, let us know. We check this. We take it really, really seriously. But here's the deal. Myself, uh, Sean Morgan, the team at CDF Capital, we want to help you get better at craft and character. We want you to get better at developing your spiritual gift of communication, of teaching and preaching and speaking. And we want to help you have your character lead the way. And so if you go to www.craftandcharacter.org, you're going to learn more about opportunities, um, some great events, some great learning experiences where you can take your next step in your development of your craft and character. Until next time, friends, grace and peace. Take care. This episode was brought to you in part by The Truce Podcast. The new season examines the connection between some evangelicals and the Republican Party with the help of world-class historians. Subscribe to Truce in your podcast app or listen at trucepodcast.com.